0: What skills and qualities do you need for career success as a professional in local economic development today and are these different post-pandemic and given recent UK political changes?
1: How is the recruitment market for LED and placemaking evolving in the face of new technologies, economic trends and changes to funding institutions and governance? And what key factors should employers consider when
0: seeking to strengthen the leadership and capabilities of their organisation to deliver growth and development?
1: I'm Mike Spicer and you're listening to LED Confidential, the podcast that tries to lift the lid on those intractable and enduring challenges facing those of us working in and on local economic development and placemaking today.
0: And I'm David Marlowe join us as we explore the human and organisation development landscape for senior LED and placemaking roles. You know, Mike, I am actually really looking forward to this episode. Both of us often bid for projects as consultants for our respective organisations, but that's so different to applying for a full-time job in your career pathway. And thinking about it, I suspect that It's exactly 20 years to the month since I last applied for a chief executive role, which was actually the role at the East of England Regional Development Agency, which ultimately led to where we met. So uh, (laughs) that in itself is quite interesting. But I do often wonder what it would be like if I was looking for a senior LED role now, how different both the job and the process would be, and also how and whether the expectations of employers have changed.
1: Well, David, thanks for making me feel old (laughs) and and taking me all all the way back a long time ago. Can you remember what they first asked you at the EDA interview? I vaguely remember being asked a version of the question that we tackled in our first uh, podcast episode, actually, which was about how you meaningfully tell a story about local economic development with evidence i feel there hasn't been a year since probably when i I've, I've not revisited that question
0: actually it's really interesting i i genuinely can't remember the questions at my last job interview but i certainly do remember it you know as a signature interview and and it was it was very political with a small p for example the eda east of england development agency chairman who chaired the interview panel was actually outgoing and he refused to allow the incoming chair to attend the interview, even though that was the person that I was going to be working with if I was successful in the job. And then there was another member of the panel who clearly had, I think there were four people on the shortlist, had a local favourite that he was determined was going to get the job. And then the um, the um head of the government office of the East of England uh, was also a member of the panel because it is actually a ministerial appointment or it's on the advice of the minister. And even though I had requested that no references be taken up in advance of the interview she had had this really long chat with my then head of government office in Yorkshire and Humber about my qualities my strengths my weaknesses and and so on um, so it was quite a fraught interview and I do again sort of wonder how much politics with both a small p and maybe even with a big p still shapes these types of Appointments today. And our guest today will have heard all of these types of stories and many, many more. She's probably assisted in the selection of more chief executives, directors of place, directors of development over the last couple of decades than almost anyone else in the UK. Julie Towers is and has been Managing Director of Penner for around, uh, I think, a dozen years, not only delivering their executive resourcing business, but encompassing many aspects of leadership, organization, and human resources development. Julie, a huge welcome to LED Confidential. Really chuffed to have you joining us today. I mean, let's just begin. I mean, what is your sense of the current demand for and supply of LED and placemaking senior professionals? And what do you think we can most usefully discuss in the next 40 minutes or so?
2: Thanks, David. Thanks, Mike, and thank you for having me along on the podcast. It's a great opportunity to talk specifically about uh, a very important area of talent for local government and the public sector, and my clients in particular. So delighted to share a bit of uh, data and statistics to give you uh, some context and your listeners some context, and happy to explore all of the issues that you've uh, you've raised there. But um, just to give some context to where place shaping, place delivery is, or regeneration, growth, whatever name you want. To give uh, to it at the moment. Pre COVID, there was a steady demand for place based roles, and we'd seen quite a spike, I think, with the emergence of new combined authorities, changes obviously recently to the LEPs, etc., growth companies. um, As organisations, both private and public sector, looked at the role they were playing. Uh, in place shaping across the UK. Um, interestingly, since COVID, we've seen uh, an increase and, a, and a, re- a retained increase in the demand for place based roles. So, for example, in 2021, there were over 220 place based roles um, advertised or recruited to across the broad local government and sort of family sector. 238 in 2022, so a continued demand. Um, But we haven't seen the increased demand um, of, say, finance, where we've seen a 50% increase since COVID in the demand for finance professionals. So so what's behind that? What do me and my colleagues spend our time thinking about? Um, We've seen, I think, a continued recognition from local government, particularly, that place expertise is required. And I think we've seen a splitting out of place shaping and place strategy and place delivery, and a marked one, and in my view, a sensible one, as politicians and officers in localities look at the strategic growth, investment, funding, the complexities of working with developers and partners to bring around infrastructural change and strategic change in their place, uh, and particularly with a growing climate change agenda. uh, We've seen then organisations separate place into a delivery role a place shaping or place strategy role so that's increased the demand for place expertise but very much people who know how to deliver local environmental place delivery uh, from the sort of cleaner greener agenda to those that are working in the more macro environment and particularly having to operate in a combined authority or a devolution setting now where place shaping is much more likely to be done on a whole system basis. So the good news for place professionals out there is there's continued demand and it it outweighs the sort of numbers of finance, um, children's services, adult services roles significantly. So surprisingly, it might surprise people because they probably think there's more children's and adults roles out there. But actually, over the last five years, pre-COVID and post-COVID, we're seeing continued sustained requirements for place shaping expertise. So it's important that um, your listeners think about what they want to do with their sort of career um, specialisms.
1: You talk about um, COVID as a sort of before and after moment in in the recruitment market and, and some of the, the trends that have emerged there. Have you found... In uh, looking at job specifications and so on, that any of the kind of sort of legacy activities of COVID, so, you know, that emphasis on uh, resilience, healthcare expertise, perhaps, has any of that kind of, is that a legacy of COVID or is that, was that a sort of moment in time? Is there any sort of hangover, a sort of long COVID, if you like, in the recruitment market and the sorts of expertise that, that place, Bodies or economic development organisations are now demanding.
2: Yeah, it's a really good point, Mike. Um, I think we've seen a long COVID effect across the talent marketplace, which happy to go further into, but particularly around place. Um, I think we were seeing it happen pre COVID, a sort of emphasis on inclusive growth, good growth, whatever sort of uh, sign off you want to put to it. But the importance of place, uh, strategic place leads. Not being fascinated or obsessed by infrastructure, buildings, the legacy of of physicality, but a pressure on them to think about the impact of that leisure centre, the impact of that uh, new transport hub, and to think about the people implications. But it was quite quiet and it was quite sort of implicit rather than explicit. Roll forward post-COVID and I think you'll see the competence is completely restructured. Everybody is clear the public health issues, the health inequality issues that COVID has left, the inequalities generally, and the impact on diversity uh, in many of our metropolitan boroughs, particularly cities, but even so in, in our countryside and rural, we are seeing acute pressure because of cost of living on that deprivation. And therefore, the connection between strategy around place and infrastructure is is taken now to a new extreme, I think, around and a rightful extreme about what is this going to do for our people, our economy, our education, our skills agenda. And I think if you can't make that connection now as a place strategist or indeed in place delivery, I think members and officers are quite right to question that because infrastructure has been the big outcome or the physical visible outcome. But actually, are we connecting in our place and indeed across our wider places? with the Education Employment Skills Agenda. So I think whereas, Mike, it was probably implicit before, it is now extremely explicit. And therefore, our place strategists, our place specialists, need to really think about how they're bringing that narrative to life about the work that they do. You know, I interview a lot of people who get very excited about building things, and who wouldn't? Building a new school, building a new university, implementing a new um, tube stop, Um, And I can understand why. But if you cannot connect that outcome into the lives of the people in the borough or the people who will utilise that borough or the economy for that borough, then I think place specialists have got to think again, because competencies now are crying out for those uh, sort of competencies to be understood and for people to be passionate about people as well as place. We always had the sort of people structure and the place structure and never the twain spoke. That's absolutely not the case these days.
0: I'm, I'm absolutely fascinated by that because actually just before you got onto the people, you, you mentioned the green and it, it does, it does strike me that in a sense, the director of place now has to have those three strings to their bow. The, and it is literally the triple bottom line. The economy, yes. Um, the people, yes. And, and now you certainly couldn't do it without contributing to net zero, contributing to, you know, maybe, um, nature recovery, um, active, healthy living and so on. So, so you've got, you literally do have the triple bottom line as fundamental to. That type of role. I mean, it, do you observe that a in your clients and B, in the career pathways of people who are getting these roles?
2: Yeah, I think definitely, David. I think it, you know, it used to be the, the primary experience one looked for in these roles was people who had delivered big programs of of change, big programs of physical infrastructure, the program management, and the ability to manage budgets, developers, outcomes were sort of weighted very high. I'd say five years ago, that was a sort of a key priority. I think post-COVID, that's swung quite a long way. I think we still want to see that people understand the complexities of working in that um, sort of plan, uh, deliver outcome phase. But actually, the softer skills of place shaping, the more strategic thinking around people, economy, community, inequalities, definitely now trumps the fact that you've done some great infrastructure. So I think it's been quite complex for some of our place candidates, both interim and perm. And we saw quite a lull after COVID where everybody sort of stepped back for a while. And there were a lot of place people that had been busy previously that were then quite quiet. It sort of took a while for almost the sort of reshaping of the place role and the place function as people said, what does this look like in a post-COVID world? So we are seeing more demand for those political skills. Um, I think the partnership skills now are right at the top of the the list because of the new landscape and still changing landscape of local economies. Um, Obviously, we've got growth of combined authorities, and I think more to come. So how do we live in the macro environment in a whole system where we've got to co-design and co-create requires a different set of leadership skills than just have you built something? Do you know how to fund economic regeneration and the questions that members are rightly asking is saying what is this what difference is this going to make to my residents how is it going to get my local community into work sustainable work and improve their lived outcomes so i think that the the conversation has shifted enormously probably more in this space than any other and i've just added icing on the cake for this area is the huge risk that's now been exposed, I suppose, in this space around investment. Many of us will have read the public interest reports on Thurrock, Sheffield Trees, you you know, whatever it is, there's, there's a big cost to place shaping. There's a big reputational risk. There's a big commercial investment piece. And I think, you know, with the huge pressure now on public funds, the director of place, the director of regen role, has a much broader remit and a much broader set of um, leadership skills to demonstrate than have you built something.
1: I was just thinking, one, one of the questions that I think as consultants we sort of obsessed with a bit in the COVID days was, you know, what would the enforced working practices, remote working and, you know, doing everything over Teams and Zoom, how would that, how might that, Affect the relationship between people and place as it, you know, plays out in businesses, in 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 economic development bodies, among others, and you know, particularly in the in the area of recruitment, where you had people potentially taking up roles at the other side of the country. Have you seen any kind of legacy of that? Are you seeing that? economic development organisations are looking further afield, potentially, if they can make those work, uh, remote working relationships work for them. Has there been any impact on the kind of, if you like, the sort of the the geographical scope of uh, recruiting activities?
2: Yeah, it has, Mike, and some good, some not so good. So I think at the beginning of COVID and when we were all starting to get back into our this is how it's going to be normal We did see candidates take jobs up further afield than they perhaps would have done previously because of the ability to uh, agile work and the sort of commitment to hybrid working that was starting to emerge. I think flip that forward 12 months and we've seen a high number of uh, most authorities are running somewhere between 50 and 70 percent in some cases of people who've been hired since lockdown. Now, you imagine that number in some private sectors, even higher was with one authority last week who said that 45% of their staff now had joined since lockdown. No corporate memory to working previously in a place with a set of people. So the new norm, I think, has created part of the, the challenges we've got around talent acquisition and retention at the moment. I think for place specialists, it was probably even harder because actually coming to a place, working in a place, being part of a place when you're its place advocate was, I think, just... A sort of uh, uh, the obvious thing wasn't you came to a place you lived you felt it you heard it you walked the streets you walked the shopping centres you felt it when we were remote work- working keeping the advocacy and ambassadorial um, approach was probably harder for people so I- I'm in two camps here as a recruiter I will tell you that if you want the best choice of talent you need to open your doors as wide as possible and be open to hybrid working as a human being and an employee myself that is not sustainable if you're not really thinking about what's going to engage people to your role and to your organisation. And if and if you are a place-based organisation, which councils are, then that's even harder. So you've probably got to find a balance. And most clients now are saying to us, you know, a senior leadership level, I expect my senior leaders to be in and on the organisation, in and on the community, not popping in. Now, what does that look like? That might look like two or three days in. Two or three days out. You might build that relationship differently if you've been there a little bit longer. If you've got longevity, it's easier apparently to you know keep connected with your organization. If you knew you need to be more physically in the place. But I'm also conscious that members will say to me, staff employees are a big part of our economy. They're a big part of our shopping and our retail, our hospitality. Every time I visit a a place to to go and see a client, I buy a coffee or a sandwich or, you know, I'll stay there. So that economy is a little bit lost. And I think members particularly find it very hard to manage. I think the the politicians find it harder because it's their locality. They, of course, live in the the borough or the city. That's part of their community. So I think as a senior leader, if you're expecting to lead a place remotely five days a week, I I don't think you're serious about the place, I would say. You've got to show how you're going to get to know the place, be in the place, and jobs as you two will know aren't nine to five. They're evenings, they're civic, they're weekends. If they're in place, they're with communities, they're with events. So we're seeing a slight shift, Mike. We're seeing a return to a little bit more of a blended um, approach, unlike the banks, of course, who have just said, right, we're all back five days a week. Um, So it's, it's a
1: challenge. But just just as a follow up question, just quickly, um, David, I know you were sort of diving to get in, so I've, I've beaten you to it there. But um, just I'm just thinking in terms of the the kind of how how that evolution, even if we're seeing perhaps a maybe a slight return to to the office, is is there now a premium? Do you think on candidates for roles? Who who are who do have a greater affinity perhaps with new technologies and and, and ways of doing things? I mean, I, I kind of in the back of my mind, I've got you know all, all of the kind of the the waves of technology that's washing over us, like AI, AI and everything like that. But I was thinking more specifically about you know even if we're only remote working once one or two days a week, is there a skill set that comes with that? Is there a particular type of person who can make that work? Better than than someone else, and how how do how do employers look for that and, and engage that?
2: You know I was going to say, Mike. There's actually there's actually become a bigger premium on candidates who will say they'll live in the area or be in the area. So we've we've got that going on at the moment. Where member panels are very attuned to listening to people who say, "Well, I know the area, I live closely, I'll be here." That's actually becoming a premium whereas previously people were probably balanced out on under hybrid working so I think with a place role particularly people want to know that you've absorbed yourself or will absorb yourself I think generally for any leader at the moment we're all if we're going to have some hybrid working effective hybrid working then our leadership skills have got to be able to come through the zoom and in the room so you've got to be looking at did it work because I was physically in and on my job. And actually now, how do I need to adapt myself, my leadership style to work in this new modern technology? I think the biggest thing, Mike, has been that people have had have got to think about carefully where people are, where their staff are. And I mean, both physically and mentally uh, with huge increasing numbers of mental health issues and isolation. And as much as people don't want to come back to work physically, there are impacts on them of working from home remotely. We, we're all aware of them. So as a leader, I think as well as the technology being able to use the technology to its best effect and use the right approach i think you've also got to have huge amounts of emotional intelligence and interest in organizational development and human interactions more than ever before because you've got to be able to uh, identify gaps uh, issues without walking around the you know the old office or the old you know floor you've got to be able to hear and see And feel that in a very different way. So emotional intelligence has probably peaked along with humility as what I say, the two top skills now for two top attributes for senior leaders.
0: Quite a difficult couple to (coughs) demonstrate an interview. (laughs) But um, no, I think you're entirely right. And it does resonate with a number of the discussions that Mike and I have had recently. I mean, we did really quite a big part of an episode about, I guess it was about the um establishing relationships with politicians and we had this whole discussion about you know what happens in the bars and the breakout sessions of conferences you know which you then do carry back in relationship terms to your your job and when something gets really hairy at, at work you can uh, in a sense, the trust and the openness and the honesty that you've built up in personal contact in more relaxed settings actually does pay a dividend. Uh, and it does strike me that it is really, really difficult to uh, develop that now, but we have to find a way of doing it. And I mean, I do know that, that one of the things that, that you are, you know, in a way as concerned in as executive resourcing is is the whole issue of leadership and organization development and and you know what can organizations do to establish and build those relationships you know in the new era if you like uh, what, what insights would you give us on that
2: yeah it's a tough one David I mean it's, and it still disappoints me to this day that I'll interview a candidate and they'll say, well I've not visited yet but I'm going to. And I always say, no, (laughs) before you put pen to paper, go and see the place, feel the place, walk the place, because leadership is about connectivity, isn't it? It's about being able to uh, connect with your product, service, whatever it is that you do. So, you know, I always always think you can, you know, most leaders could lead any kind of organisation, as in the generic skills, whether you'd want to, and you were driven to, is what it's all about. So I think, you know, public purpose, passion for place comes from uh, seeing and feeling and and being able to relate to it, and, and you both know, a good interview is always about when your skills and attributes and your the timing of your career collide with an, an opportunity that needs your skills, experience, and approach. And if you haven't visited the place, I'm not sure how you're going to know that because you can read online. You can there's peer reviews these days. There's lots of reports you can read, but there's nothing replaces. The physical face-to-face and you know as we are in whatever the new norm is you can go to places as I keep saying to people now you know the buses the planes the trains the tube they're all working you can be in places but I think we've become a bit lazy I think there's a danger to be lazy and think well I'll use the technology to humans interact through other human you know sort of connectivity which is why I'm delighted that mostly all of our I mean well, all of our roles now have some face-to-face activity we've we obviously ran through lockdown completely online and I think we did nearly 200 appointments without anybody having met anybody physically which you know I say that and think, wow, but we're back
0: to normal. And how did those (laughs) turn out in in retrospect?
2: I'm just going to say, touch wood, nobody's got fired (laughs) yet or left. So that's got to be good, hasn't it? Yeah. Um, I I do, seriously though, David, I do think talking to other fellow colleague recruiters, I do think we had some people who made rush decisions. I think. thought it was going to be easier to work in a place that was further away. And what we've seen is those people that then say, mm, not sure how this is going to work and, you know, may need to go back to having a flat in a locality. So I think some people must have made a quick decision during lockdown and thought, well, actually at five days a week, I can be online. Now we're back to three days or two days online. I think some people have had to make different professional and personal choices, but um, no, I mean, the process worked online I've got two views on this. One, I, I, I think in local government, speaking for local government, which is the, the area I spend most of my time in, the word's local, isn't it? So you need to be in that locality. You need to be part of it. You need to understand it. Not live in it. Not necessarily, you know, you can, I think being in it five days a week used to work before and I don't see why it wouldn't work now. People are, are relocating, you know, even if they're relocating themselves. But I think you know recruitment processes benefit from human interaction with the hiring manager, the leader. In my case, the senior leadership team, um, because that's where we find whether our values chime. And I can write values down, and you can say yes, I agree with them, Julia. They're mine too. Until we behaviorally test those, we don't really know. So I think you know lots of human interaction, lots of assessment, having a whole range of things as a recruiter is really important because one or two things alone will never tell you whether somebody is the right fit. And as a candidate, it won't give you enough interaction for you to make that judgment either. So I'm a great believer in the more interactions, the more real life. I did a a large place role just before lockdown, actually. And we took all the candidates out on a a tour with a graduate from the graduate programme of the council, ask them to come back and feed back to the portfolio holder, ask them to go and talk to some residents, because it's not just the strategy and the sort of intellectual capability, it's the competency to communicate and engage others in what is now a very co-designed and community-led, politically-led agenda. I think 10 years ago, David, we'd have been talking about members definitely being part of the process and being very visible but I think less politically led than we are where we are today. It's it's rightly so more politically led, more community led, more diverse and more complex requiring officers to, to channel soft skills way more than hard skills.
0: I mean, before Mike comes in, I, I must ask you because I mean, obviously I I'm not in the job market anymore, but I look at um, recruitments and I look at appointments and Sometimes you know the candidate and you know the place and you just know in your heart that is not going to end well. And of course, you have seen hundreds of these. And, and, you know, to be fair to members and chief executives, they're only going to appoint one director of place every few years. So they don't, it's not their day job, so to speak. They don't see hundreds of these things. There must be times when you also have that feeling, but for some reason, the members or the appointment panel have got it fixed in their head that we must have A or we must have B. How do you actually handle that when you just know that they're <laughs> making a mistake? Because let, let's be honest. The appointment decision is probably one of the, the senior appointment decision is absolutely critical. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I've seen a few in the last two or three years and i've just thought that's just not going to end well what do you do when you find yourself in that situation and members are leaning terribly towards making what you yourself professionally would say i don't think that's going to work what do you do oh
2: that's a great question um I I I would try not to think that my view is the right one. Of course, we're not king or queen makers, as I always say. I think as recruiters, we we do have a duty of care to make sure that the process unearths any bias or sort of any preference that's not grounded in evidence. Um, And you try and look at why somebody's coming to a conclusion that they are the perfect person when you're seeing something differently. And you have to be evidence-based. That has to come through assessment. Um, it has to come from interviews that's the things that you see off outside of interview process as well as inside so you know it's not a recruitment isn't a science it is an art and a science I, touch wood there's only two I can think of where I have actually s- said I think this is an unsafe appointment you try and avoid being at the point where you are being asked um, particularly as I, I've had the privilege of working with many commissioners and government when they've intervened and and they often will say does anybody see any you know issue or risk I, I would always try and avoid that point by talking to the leader the mayor the members way before them to say this is going to be an issue and I can see that you're you're ignoring it or you've chosen to ignore it and you need to unearth that. So you have to have some tricky conversations with hiring managers who don't always like that because they've got a view. Twice I've been in a position where I've had to say, I am concerned about this appointment, but it is your appointment members and where I've had to step into a room with a leader and say, why are you supporting this appointment? Because you, I can see that it's not the right candidate for you. that that leader gave me a perfectly good reason why they were choosing that approach. So I felt validated and put it on record with HR. Uh, Members are members. They get to make their decisions. And I've seen somebody make a decision because of groupthink, And that's my worst one, because whether we like it or not, we work in a mostly a a cabinet, a strong leader model, a a mayor model. Um, And that one relationship, whilst it is not the only relationship for a local government officer, it's a really pivotal one. But I think it's, if recruitment's done well, you take your time over it. You have lots of interactions. You do lots of different assessments. You unearth things and try and find ways of showing the panel different sides of people that they may not get to see. I think due diligence. If you do your work properly, hopefully you don't get to that. The one that always makes me uh, sort of more uh, sort of sad, I suppose, is when it goes really well and they make a great appointment and then something changes, you know, six months down the line and all of that context that we probably didn't realise was the the reason that the appointment was a great one has disappeared or changed. So, and you can't validate that. You both know, being in local government, you have to be ready for a roller coaster of anything. So,
0: <laughs> oh, one <laughs> la- one last point on this because I I also think and this might be helpful to our listeners, um, it's about the self awareness of candidates. I mean, how do how do you and your team help candidates themselves? be self-aware about the pros and cons of them in a role that they've probably put a lot of effort into pitching for. Um, But it is going to be, you know, a stretch or a set of tensions that they need to be ready for. I think it's, I
2: think it's, One of the biggest reasons why I hope people use recruitment consultants, David, actually not just to help them as the organisation, but to help candidates and give them a great experience. I always say that everybody should walk away from one of our processes, maybe disappointed, but with great feedback, great learning, and great development planning to do. So, I think it's a key part of our job. It's actually the, the nicest part of the job seeing somebody absorb, learn, and then come back in another time round and, and nail it. So, um, I think you have to be, you have to test that candidates are open to feedback and they are self aware because we say it, and, you know, I'm very self aware. And then you ask for an example of it, not everybody can give you one. I also think. Local government, generally a public sector, are getting better at feedback, performance feedback, 360, but it's not really embedded into a culture. So having the humility yourself to think, I do want to learn, I can take feedback on, good and bad, without defending So ask yourself really and ask others whether you are really self-aware and thinking about your impact. You can normally tell whether somebody's self-aware by just asking a few probing questions to see, you know, when was the last time they had feedback? What did they do with it? How do they deal with, you know, critical feedback? And, you know, it's, it's British, isn't it, to not really want to hear all of that either and just sort of gloss through. So I think you have to pave the way with candidates to say, if we're going on this journey together, I'm going to be really honest with you a great one for me is I always test the candidate's understanding of the context and the role because they'll have have often missed the unprintable, the unpublished story. And we know there's always one, isn't there? And it's not necessarily a negative one. It's just the the sort of story that lies behind any job is the context, the people, the the legacy, what's gone before. And so um, in hearing their Research in her in how they've tested that. You can normally tell whether they're thinking it's the best job ever, and I'm the best person for it. But hold on a minute. Have you thought about you know the fact they've got five internal candidates, and there's a really you know this is the agenda. Oh right, okay. So I think our job is partly to help people get the context and understand. But getting feedback throughout, and I say this so many times, 42 of our candidates last year took up feedback. That's terrible that is terrible. <laughs> Sorry, I, gonna, I say it every year, try to, terrible. And we offer we offer feedback at every stage. And I'm sure my other co- competitor colleagues do. But it's it's getting better. I think that's as people seek to, to sort of, but so many people put an application in, don't ring us. And then you get a surprise. And I think, oh, why didn't you call me? I could have given you a bit of insight. Or I suppose they think the recruitment consultant can't know any more than them. And often we can't, And, of course, internal candidates always say, well, I didn't phone you because I know everything there is to know about. And I always say, yes, you're absolutely right, but I know more about your leader's brief than you do because your leader's briefed me. So I think our job is to keep helping people think about what they can learn, what they can use the knowledge for. They don't have to take it on board. But I think the personal feedback, the coaching that you can get about your impact, um, the nuancing of interviewing online the nuancing of interviewing over a you know a period of, of six to eight weeks it can be a long marathon getting a you know particularly a chief exec or an exec director role so I always say you know feedback is the breakfast of champions if it's offered take it if you're struggling to take it in or you feel defensive absorb it reflect on it take some time but if somebody's seeing something it's their truth uh, if it's perceived it's their truth and so I always say to me I'm not criticizing you I'm going to tell you how it felt to be me on the receiving end of your interview or the receiving end of our conversation. And I think it's just something as as British people, we all need to get better at actually to to sort of seeing and hearing that feedback. I actually think on uh, lockdown created a much better bridge to this kind of conversation. People felt much more comfortable. We were all frightened. We were all scared. We're all dealing with some terrible things every day. I've seen walls come down over the last three years that, probably would never have come down. And now I think we are at a stage where that human conversation about how we impact others and I'm not feeling we've got to be perfect to get a leadership job um, seems easier, I would say. So I think we're on a you know the cusp of a much better, you know, human to human conversation about our impact and our leadership skills to hopefully take the feedback on. And I-, I can honestly say the candidates who take the feedback, learn from it, get the next job.
1: And just just building on that, Julie, and thinking about the sort of the the long and windy path to a, a senior leadership role, because obviously it's not something that happens overnight for people, thinking about all of the feedback that, that you've had to give over the years, what would you say to someone who's perhaps towards the, the beginning of their career, but has aspirations to senior leadership? What kind of things do they need to take on board? What sort of things do they need to focus on to develop themselves so that they can be, you know, really compelling candidates in a future um, recruitment process?
2: Yeah, great question. And um, we run an aspirant chief exec programme. You might know Mike, David certainly does. The biggest questions we ask them to ask themselves is, why do I want to be a chief exec in this situation? Exec director of place. Why do I want to get promotion? Whatever the next level is, um, or if it's a sideways move, knowing why you're doing it is often the one that we miss. We think we have to. We think it's the next job somebody said I'd be good at. And I can guarantee 50% of our delegates come to the course saying, I'm not sure if I want to be a chief, but that's that's okay. That's okay. I'll use the course and the program or go across to the SOLACE program, which is excellent, just to, to see what it's really about. So I always say planning is the ideal. Now, not to plan your whole career out, because I don't think many people do that these days, but just to have an inkling that you might want to be an exec director of place in the next three to five years is important because those that plan will get there. If if they don't want to, that's fine, but they'll get there. So I do think you have to be able to see yourself in that role or start to think about, as I go on that journey, because I think that's, that's the journey for me, what do I need to build around me? The people who get appointed have normally put the networks in place. They've normally gone and done the learning. They've gone and dealt with their deficit. They've done a strengths and weaknesses collateral list and said, you know, actually, I'm really good at the physical infrastructure. But this, you know, inclusive growth, I need to go and see some best examples. I need to go and talk to people. I need to go and speak to David Marlowe about what's going on in... They've broadened their horizons already, Mike, and I think that's what good candidates do that are... Even if they decide not to use that, they've stepped towards and looked in and got their head around, my networks are great, but they're all very place-based. Do I need to start looking at employability and skills and climate change, net zero, etc.? So they're inquisitive. A good candidate that wants to progress will always be inquisitive. It doesn't matter where it takes you. But you do need to know why you want to be a chief exec or an exec director of place because somebody's going to ask you. <laughs> and if you haven't got a good answer to yourself, you're not going to give me one.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, almost expect it to be the first question. Any last words from you, Julie, and then I'll ask Mike to finish us off. But um, any, any last comments on on uh, your reflections on the last 40 minutes or so?
2: I just want to say thank you for, for the conversation. I think it's been really rich, and I hope it's um, prompted some people that are thinking about developing their careers. If they want to reach out to myself or others, we're always happy to talk to people about their thinking. I suppose one glimmer of hope, more chief execs are becoming chiefs from a place, regeneration, place-based background than ever. That continues to be a good trend, I think, for your profession. So I think when we think about leadership of place, leadership of the organisation, uh, leadership of communities, then the skills that are gained in your area are proving to be extremely valuable um, for future careers. So I hope that gives people some confidence to to think forward as well. But no, thank you for having me. It's been a delight
1: and great to, have, great to have you, Julie. Really great episode. Um, for our listeners out there, just a reminder that the uh, LED Confidential website is now live, uh, and you can learn more about this episode and other episodes on that website. You can also contact um, either me or, or David uh, directly through the website, and we hope uh, to continue the discussion there. So do check out ledconfidential.co.uk. So until next time, thank you very much for listening.